0: This is the McKinsey Podcast, where we help you make sense out of our world's toughest business challenges.
1: Welcome to the show. I'm Lucia Reilly. And I'm
0: Roberta Fissaro.
2: choppier waters do make for the opportunity to get ahead because it requires greater skill and it requires greater courage and asking yourself the question, what are the sets of things that you really feel inspired
1: to change now? That's Liz Hilton-Siegel, McKinsey's Chief Client Officer, on a recent episode of our webinar series, McKinsey Live. Liz joined me and Homiun Hatami, McKinsey's Managing Partner of Global Client Capabilities. We talked about six priorities for CEOs in these turbulent times, a conversation we're sharing with you today. After,
3: a trailblazing CEO shares her leadership priorities. It's Ginny Rometty, former CEO of IBM, in an excerpt from our Author Talk series. Her new book is Good Power.
1: Liz and Homayoun, welcome to McKinsey Live, and thanks so much for joining us. It's lovely to be back to see you again, Lucia.
0: It's very nice to be here. Thank you for having us.
1: So Liz, let's start with some context. You and I actually spoke just about a year ago on McKinsey Live about what was top of mind for CEOs during that particular stretch of turbulence. Talk to us about what has changed over the past year
2: the degree of the shock in the macroeconomic environment, including energy prices and the effect on inflation, as well as supply shocks, has really taken, I think, most CEOs into a place they've never been before. But, you know, it's also true that consumer buying behavior has really changed. And I think we sort of accepted that during COVID. Digital channels that had grown by a few percent prior to COVID increased by 100% or 200%. I'm talking about really radical differences in how Consumers are buying things like groceries, as an example. You know, if you look at the most recent um, past, China's reopening and the significance of China's reopening post-COVID, China accounts for 18% of global GDP. And even if you look at a more conservative growth forecast over the next 10 years or so, China will add as much GDP as all of India's GDP in 2021. So I think companies and CEOs in particular really do need to re-zero in on their mindset and approach to their business in China and their collaboration with China.
1: Okay. So that's a new set of challenges and uncertainties, acknowledging then that change is the only constant as Heraclitus and also my grandmother used to say, walk us through what matters most to CEOs who are really looking to capture the opportunity and generate outperformance and thrive despite these persistent (laughs) exogenous shocks. I
2: think as a CEO right now, your job is all about prioritization. The world's different; it's different on many of the different dimensions I talked about. So, as we have thought about, you know, what are six concrete priorities that, if, that CEOs uh, are and should be thinking about right now? You know, we start with building resilience as a muscle of the organization, and the second one is just having a courageous mindset towards change, like leaning into change in a period of uncertainty as opposed to away from it. And then from a content point of view, technology is the foundation for growth. There's much more to be leaned into in terms of uh, how businesses are capitalizing on technology. Um, Much more to be looked at as it relates to building new businesses. Um, You know, our point of view is that, you know, net zero is like, keep going. Do not not take your foot off the gas on that and and continue the progress uh, that we see so many uh, making across industries. And then underpinning all of that is a rethink on, you know, how you are competing and winning in the talent market. Because at the end of the day, all of this is underpinned by uh, the quality of your talent value proposition.
1: Great, so let's get into these now in a little bit more detail. The first priority you've invoked here is resilience. Homie, we are all using that word nowadays. Surely we all agree it's a good thing, but help us understand what does it really mean in practice for leaders?
0: We would define resilience uh, as the ability to uh, to deal with the adversity, of course, uh, to withstand shock, to adapt fast. I think the notion of speed is very important with the goal of of winning in the market, you know with the goal of being able, as Liz said of playing um, defense and offense. and it's really an essential skill because uh, during the, um, the the period of uh, twenty 2020 twenty to twenty twenty one, uh, resilient companies uh, generated shareholder returns that were 50% higher than those of less lesi- lesi- resilient peers. So what did they do? Well, they prepare really well. Uh, you know, they really think about uh, the flexibility that they want to bring to their supply chain. Uh, for example, with multiple suppliers, we all know that uh, supplier dependency, on, in particular in some countries, what was a real issue during, during COVID. Companies have adapted to that. Uh, they uh, put systems in place to detect uh, potential disruptions. Uh, obviously, cybersecurity threats is is one of them. Uh, but they also take actions to uh, preempt issues. For example, now uh, companies use analytics uh, for predictive maintenance. Uh, they do planning in a different way instead of doing it based on, you know, last year's budget, last year's assumption. You know, they think about scenarios. Obviously, you know, I think... Uh, uh, as in my one of my favorite favorite quotes is Niels Bohr said, it's very hard to make a prediction, especially about the future. <laughs> so it could not be more true now. However, we can all make uh, scenarios. We can make uh, you know different plans. And the final point is, um, you know, at the end of the day, um, top talent uh, is the best response to volatility. And so these organizations put a lot of effort on what we call talent value. To really identify uh, you know uh, the roles that are the most value driving roles for the organization and do we have the best talent in those best roles because with the best teams then good things happen even in you know tougher time
1: fascinating okay let's move to the next priority courage again we all aspire to be courageous it sounds great but what do we mean by strategic courage and what does taking courage look like especially when as you've described, so many economic indicators are flashing red. Choppier waters do make for the opportunity to get
2: ahead uh, because it requires uh, greater skill and it requires greater courage. I think the question is, how do you go about that? And I, as we you know, engage with clients, we certainly do see some folks who are in more of a defensive posture that Paul was referring to a little bit, meaning more focus on scenario planning, more focus on resilience preparation, more focus on the balance sheet, uh, more focus on margin expansion, more caution. But you know what we believe is that this is really also a time for courage and asking yourself the question, what are the sets of things that you really feel inspired to change now? And then the disruption that's been in the markets today, I think folks are asking themselves the question, when and how can I do that? And so whether it's an M&A strategy, whether or not it's resource reallocation, whether it's thinking about the capabilities that you differentially want to build in order to compete in your marketplace successfully, what we would advocate is for, you know, a lean forward posture. And I think that can be in big ways, like, you know, a series of uh, of and uh, a moves, but it can also be in small ways. So, you know, an example of a small way is uh, one of our uh, clients who's a large global bank, they just literally assemble their 70 country managers to get them together to say, what are the trends that you're seeing? What are the trends you're seeing in the ways in which uh, customers are buying from us differently and evaluating us differently? And then they disseminate that information back into their sales force so that they could have a greater chance of of shifting share. And that sense of being sort of leaned forward on what is happening in trends and how are we activating uh, ourselves as a result of those trends, I think is a great example of more of a lean forward posture
1: to just say a bit more about bringing that longer term lens on playing offense into better focus for our audience. You know, a
2: few things on the how, you know, one is is to set the tone of an aspirational mindset and culture, right? To not accept as given what is the deck you're handed, but rather to say, how am I going to actually make a play out of this? The second thing is to just think about are you really uh, leveraging the full set of pathways for profitable growth that could be, and that could be things you do to expand the core. That could be things that you do to actually really step out into adjacencies and be brave about how you step out into adjacencies. And that could also be um, about new businesses. Um, We actually uh, did a survey and um, uh, found that eight in 10 uh, CEOs now see new business as a top priority. And so you know that fits, I think, quite well in our in our thinking about the emphasis on new business and a, and a critical priority for this time.
1: Well, man, suppose I'm leading an organization, I'm one of those eight and ten CEOs Liz mentioned who are prioritizing new businesses. Any suggestions on how to go about building those new businesses at scale? What are the best leaders getting right here?
0: The first thing I would say is uh, get very close to the to the customers, get very close to the buyers. Uh, We all know uh, amazing CEOs that obviously, you know, they have surveys, they have uh, consumer research, they have ethnographic research, but they personally spend a lot of time uh, with the customers, you know, in the stores. Uh, And, uh, you know, it's very important for us to really understand the customer pain point that this new business will address. Uh, The second thing I would say is that um, as we try to build a new business, it's very important that we are all clear on the unique advantage that that we want to, you know, bring to bear in solving those customer issues. I'm going to use the example of uh, Netflix, you know, that boomed during COVID. Uh, and, you know, obviously we know of Netflix that, uh, you know, they, they had an advantage, which was, you know, back in the days to move from um, offline to online channels. Uh, but really what's making the difference now is the originals, you know, because they have this ability, the economic model, they are able to spend you know, much more than other uh, production houses in the originals. These are the top viewed content that creates stickiness. They also have a recommendation engine. And that drives the 80% of the hours that are streamed. And so, you know, this is what they bring. And business after business that is that is successful, you have to bring, you know, something that is, that is very, very, you know, unique to you. Uh, the third thing we would say is, um, you know, you have to uh, dream big. And, uh, you know, if you, if you don't think that this new business is going to be a unicorn. You know, don't do it. Uh, there are lots of you know opportunities out there in the field of uh, technology, sustainability. We'll talk about it. You know, even in healthcare, and really there are lots of opportunities for for you new know, new business to building. At the end of the day, this comes back to uh, personal leadership. Uh, it's very important when you are trying as a as an established company to launch a new business to have a very uh, supportive ceo who's going to be the the, the champion uh, you know to set the vision set the aspiration you know set the uh, investment profile against that aspiration uh, to give that new business a, a certain amount of autonomy because this business will have to reinvent the way you know business in, is done will have to reinvent um, the way you know they want to serve the customers they cannot live with the legacy issues that some established businesses they have and then speed is very important. And uh, you know, in that regard, acquisitions and serial acquisitions as you seek to build a new market can be quite powerful.
1: So a lot of what we're talking about here, it seems both in terms of acquiring new capabilities, acquisitions, as you just said, and in terms of product innovation and growth, hinges on tech, obviously. Talk us through how CEOs should be thinking about their technology, Liz. Recently, I was
2: asked to speak to the sales force of you know one of the largest technology companies that you all know, and the question that they asked me is, you know, is technology really on the mind of the CEO, or is it still really more in the purview of the CIO, given everything that's happening in the world? And you know, my answer to them was unequivocal: yes, it is 100% on the minds of CEOs. Uh, you know, a similar survey that we did recently to the one I described earlier is we asked companies uh, whether or not they are engaged in some form of digital transformation. And 89% of them said that they are. But the problem is, is that only one third of them said they think they're getting the financial value that they had anticipated at the start of it. And so I think the, the CEO uh, challenge or opportunity is to continue to keep the aspiration, the pace around technology transformation, in their company, but to be clear-eyed about whether it is in fact helping to deliver the growth outcomes and the margin outcomes that I talked about earlier. And in that vein, you know, we think about, a couple different questions, at least to ask yourselves at the management team. For most people know what they're trying to get done from a technical point of view, but the question is, is is there a very direct link to value created and tracking of whether or not that value created is coming through? And since we're seeing in many cases, it's not, we, we put that first and foremost. So the second thing is, am I running into trouble in terms of my talent, my operating model to deliver that roadmap with pace? And then the third question is, do I have, in fact, the core technical architecture and the tooling and the data management necessary to deliver against what was assumed in the roadmap? When we do a similar analysis of what I referred to earlier, where we try to separate top economic performers to less successful companies in terms of their returns to shareholders, what you see is that among the top performers, they say that software is at the center of differentiating themselves from competition software that they themselves have created And they say that about a third of them are monetizing that software in some form directly. So I think this whole idea of if I'm a traditional company, how do I think and operate like a software company would is something that's front and center for an increasing number of executives and CEOs. And within that, you know, three things I would just call out, you know, one is, do you feel as if you have a software like culture? Meaning, do you treat the technology executives in your company as equal to and at the same table as business executives? What is the real sophistication of your product management capability? Do you have a product management capability that ensures end-to-end connection between the benefits created, the technology to create those benefits, and the feedback loop on customer and, and business performance? And then lastly, is what is the real rigor around your, um, your software development engine? Do you have the visibility and insight into the productivity and effectiveness of that engine equivalent to what a software company would?
1: Let's keep moving to the fifth priority. Coming out of Davos, we saw that net zero remains front and center on the CEO agenda but obviously leaders have to advance toward an energy system that's clean and that's sustainable, but at the same time is affordable, it's resilient, it's secure. We've called it before a devilish duality. How should leaders navigate that dilemma, Homiun?
0: Well, it is a duality because, uh, you know, on one hand, uh, you know, we, we, we must solve the uh, net zero equation. You know, we must, uh, uh, you know, manage this uh, climate crisis that, uh, that is the the challenge of our of our time, and at the same time, you know, it's understandable. Uh, you know, there is a need for resilience. There is a need for uh, you know clean energy, affordable energy. Um, we would have, uh, I think, two ideas, you know, for CEOs. Uh, and and by the way, I'm talking about CEOs, but this is really a you know private-public you know collaboration that needs to play, take place. But I think what what uh, CEOs should do is, I think, first we would reframe that this is not a um, you know, a, a cost to do business. In fact, this is an opportunity to do business, and we would say, uh, you know, uh, follow the money. You know, take an investor view uh, as to you know where you can you know be an early mover uh, in this in this domain. There is a lot of uh, investments being be, being made. In fact, you know, we estimate that there are uh, 12 value pools that uh, could could create uh, you know 12 trillion in opportunity by 2030. I'm not going to enumerate them all. This is about in transport, uh, electrification, you know, micromobility, uh, you know, the infrastructure for electric or hydrogen vehicles, uh, you know, sustainable aviation, so on and so forth. And um, as we think about those, those specific opportunities, I mean, these can be, you know, positive ROI investment opportunities for, for, uh, for CEOs. And so this is not so much about, you know, do I have to do one or the other? It's more of an and. You know we can invest profitably in those in those areas, and uh, we would uh, recommend you know for companies to be a uh, early mover advantage uh, in those spaces. The same could be said about, about by the way uh, nature based uh, solution. You know it's very important that uh, the 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 move to to close the equation is not just about um, you know the, the 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 brown to green transition for you know for the established footprint that we have, but we have to. Uh, preserve uh, nature. And again, the same thing could be said, there are specific opportunities that are ROI positive. Uh, for example, um, regenerative agriculture, reducing, you know, f- food waste, um, uh, returnable and uh, reusable containers to remove plastic weights. You know, in our view, this is all uh, positive for business, positive for the planet, positive for uh, humankind. And so, you know, what's what's good for everyone should be good also for business
1: let's move to our final priority, which is talent. Liz, what do you see the best leaders doing differently in this very tight talent market and talent space? Maybe if I just group them into three kind of categories. The first one is all around
2: both selection and advancement and what information is used uh, by companies to, to do that best. And on the selection point, we, we try to talk about moving from pedigree to potential. So getting out of the game of um, classic uh, characteristics that are used to assess people like their education or experience requirements and move more into uh, looking at skill credentials and creating the uh, interviewing process or the selection process that allows for skill credentialing to be uh, to be the core of it. The companion to that is getting out of a mindset of you know months or years enroll as the basis for promotion and into, more of a view of what was the impact that you were delivered so that you can deliver an accelerated career path for somebody who's really making a big difference in the, in the institution and help them through. I think if you say, well, what about the job itself? How how does that need to change? I think there we're going to see a tremendous amount of continued experimentation. I think hybrid working is here to stay, but how hybrid working works, how do you actually functionally make uh, technologies work? How do you create a new set of cultures and norms? There's a tremendous amount of experimentation here. And I think, Companies that lean forward into that experimentation are going to get maximum global productivity and companies that sort of say, oh, we're going back to the old way are going to miss a trick. I think there's also much more innovation around apprenticeship and less of a mindset of the more senior person teaches the younger person how to do things and much more of a sense of two-way apprenticeship and the value that a next generation can bring to actually educating or upskilling the more senior folks uh, in the organization. And then the other place where where we're certainly exploring more is just the question of self-authorship and not making an assumption that the company tells the person what their career path is, but rather that the individual is able to express what is would be exciting and purpose-filled career for them. I think a lot of folks have felt like, oh, the, the nature of the co- post-COVID period and the amount of economic shock that has gone on means that we can kind of go back to the old on the talent value proposition and i think it's a mistake the world is moving and adapting and companies need to uh need to adapt with it
1: thanks liz that brings us to time but this has been a really rich discussion folks should know that we have much more on all of these topics on mckinsey.com so please visit us for more and liz and homie thanks again for joining us today thank you
3: Next up, we'll hear from former IBM CEO, Ginny Rometty. This ceiling smasher shares her leadership priorities in an excerpt from our Author Talk series featuring her new book, Good Power. My father abandoned our family, left us with nothing, no money, no home. And that would span decades to eventually here, my goodness, end up as the CEO of IBM and now the co-chair of an organization called 110. Very early in my career, I never wanted to be recognized as being a woman. And I was always recognized me for my work. And at one point, maybe 10 years in, I was down in Australia doing some work and giving a big presentation on financial services. A man walked up to me and he said, I wish my daughter had been here to see this. And in that moment, And again, it's a bit of a transition, the book says, from the power of me to the power of we. I realized this isn't about me. Forget that I don't wanna be recognized this way, but you cannot be what you cannot see. And then we each have to accept this responsibility that if we're blessed with moving on in these roles, that we gotta be able to embrace it to a large degree. In the book even, I do speak a bit about being a woman in those times and now, which are things I never spoke of but I realized they're important to another generation, another group of people who want to inspire and believe that they can be this. When my father left my mother and she had nothing more than a high school education, but it never worked outside the home. And here we were homeless, no money. She found a way to get just enough education to get a better job and then a little more, another better job to change our circumstances. But at a really early age, I started to learn by watching that aptitude and access are two different things. But with a little bit of access to that education, she could change her circumstances. Actually, it's curiosity and this willingness to learn something new that makes the biggest difference. And all these ideas converged in my mind to something that said, wait a second, we've got to move the whole country to a skills, not just degree view of jobs and then hire for that, reward for that, and does many things. A, as an employer, I need people with the right skill. B, there's so many people left out with economic opportunities. This brings so many more people back into a workforce. And so at the end of the day, in this environment right now, to me it is the number one thing a company can do to build the most inclusive and productive workforce is think of skills first as a culture, not a program. One of the most important lessons I believe I learned was probably 10 years into my career, maybe a little bit more, is this thought that growth, my growth, and comfort would never coexist. I think if you do shut your eyes and think about when did you learn the most in life, it'll be at a time when you put yourself at risk or you were in a riskier situation or an uncertain situation. That crystallization for me made it much easier for me to take on very risky changes and different jobs that were really difficult. Let's talk a minute about conflict. I learned to run towards conflict because conflict can otherwise really eat away at you, take away really precious energy. And I started to learn that if I would go run toward it, it would relieve the energy drain on me significantly and flip that around. Because whenever you position something where there's gonna be a winner and a loser, Very rarely have I seen that be to anybody's benefit. And so if you position something that there is just no way out other than to make the other person look like a loser, you're not gonna get done what you have to get done. When I step back and I think of the book end to end, I hope my storytelling is really in service of people that read the book and gives them confidence that you really can change something and that scope and potency grows over time.
1: Thanks so much for listening to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Lucia Raheli. And
3: I'm Roberta Fassaro.
1: Find us on McKinsey.com. We'll have a transcript of this episode up shortly.
3: And check out the McKinsey Insights app where you can find this podcast and other helpful content updated daily.
1: And if you would, we'd love for you to leave a rating and a review. We'll see you in two weeks.